The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for the New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are the, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe in a slightly noisy cafe today, but that's okay. Yeah, we're feeling the vibe of it. Yeah, we are. That's good. Um, so uh, what did you make of yesterday's CPI, mate? I thought it was, uh, oh, I think it's a blow. I think it's a blow for people out there. I, I, I listened to the Woolworths call. Uh, Woolworths had a first quarter sales call in the morning before the inflation numbers came out. And Brad Banducci really gave a great view of how people in the mortgage belt are really doing it tough. And so are renters, um, single couples and single families who should have more disposable income. Now they're doing it tough. And I can't see any way out of another rate hike, maybe two. And I just feel for those people. I don't know what the answer is. But the RBA is going to be hiking into a sluggish economy. It's not a really a recipe for good times. No. The, well, the, the, uh, the odds of a rate hike in November are now 60%. Yep. So not 100%. No, no. There's still a chance, according yeah. to the market. Yeah. Um, but Michelle Bullock's talked herself into a corner, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I mean, you can't go out and say we've got a low tolerance for inflation not getting back to the target by 2025 and then not raise rates. I mean... 2025 is a long way off. Are we talking two years here? Yeah, sure. I mean, sure. you know, there's not... But, but the, but the there's RBA... There's plenty of time. The RBA's target for the end of this year is 4% for core inflation, the trim mean. So at the moment it's running, what, 5.6? So it, it needs to... Inflation needs to more than half in the December quarter... For, it, for the RBA to be on track. It's just not going to happen. No, that's true. So, yeah, I'm afraid you're right. Yeah. Probably there's, there's going to be a rate hike. And, um, it's, and it's really going to hurt. It's really going to hurt. Yeah, so you wonder whether we're, going to, we're in for a recession. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think employment is the thing, as we've been saying. Employment's the thing that uh, is remarkable and maybe it sort of holds up. Um, certainly keeps people in their houses and cushions the blow, but... Um, yeah, a, a sort of full recession, a full employment recession does feel like it's coming. Full employment recession? Yeah. Interesting. Because I don't think people, I mean, there's no signs that um, the latest labour market numbers say that uh, employers uh, might be cutting people's hours, but they're not cutting jobs. So they fear there's a degree of labour hoarding going on, which is probably good as a cushion for the economy. So the, I reckon you could see GDP growth have its two negative quarters, um, which is the technical definition of recession. But whether we get the Alan Kohler definition of recession, which is a spike in unemployment, I think yeah, that's I still wonder, up for To grabs. be honest, I wonder if, if, if unemployment doesn't go up much, yeah. um, then is it a recession at all? Yeah, is it because a real one? Because in the United States, it wouldn't be called a recession. They're not in, they don't do the technical definition thing. Yeah. They have the National Bureau of Economic Research has to define it. Yes. And so, and actually say, with hindsight, that was a recession, uh, and they don't just look at GDP over two quarters. Yeah, yeah. 
I think whatever we call it, it it's now really starting to hurt. Oh, the, the point, I suppose, is that there's a lot of people who are having a recession. Yeah, that, that's right a, now. That's, that's a good way of talking. You about know, it. there's yeah. a lot, a lot of people having a recession. Yeah, I mean, the RBA's stability review said there's 15 percent of households that don't have income to cover their mortgage payments and their expenses. And that, that includes some hard-to-get-rid-of-expenses like school fees and yeah. private health insurance. But 15%, that's a So that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. You know, it's a bit like, the you know, your head's in the fridge and your feet are in the fire, but you feel okay on average. Um, there's p- pockets of pain out there. So um, a bloke who's not having a recession is Anthony Pratt. <laughs> <laughs> well, he might be. I think nah. He's probably having a... Feeling a little sheepish, at least, isn't he? <laughs> He's feeling sheepish. So the question is, I mean, uh, the question is, firstly, why uh, did he record his conversations? Or if or, he did, or, or somebody. Who, did, who recorded it? He must have known. I mean, I don't know. it wasn't the other people who re- – it wasn't uh, other people who re- – like, it wasn't Trump who was recording no, the conversation. No. It was yes. him. Yes. Right. It was on his side. So somebody was doing it with Anthony Pratt's knowledge – Presumably, Must have. yeah. So, firstly, why does he do that? Not and sure. Not sure. Is, you know, like, is he Richard Nixon or something? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> and then, and secondly, who's leaked it? Yes. Yes. I mean, it's Nick McKenzie, right, in The Age and, and Co. Yeah. And the, in the nine papers have got the hold of these tapes. Unbelievable. Yes. The, the great rule of... Um you know, that, that lawyers will tell you, particularly corporate lawyers, is never write anything down. Um, you know, yeah. ne- never put anything in an email that you wouldn't want read out in court. But, <laughs> but it's even worse when you're... Imagine, you know, anyone's conversations being recorded. It's, you know... Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, it's never going to sound good. I'd be fine, of, of course. Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But really, Jesus. The rest of us would probably... I mean, but, and, but the thing is, the other thing is, that about the same time as that, all that came out, uh, this report came out from the EU Tax Observatory right. about billionaires paying tax. Yes, okay. Which I've devoted my column to this morning. Right, yes. Uh, and, leading, uh, uh, and let me guess, they're not so good at it? <laughs> so the uh, – I'm just trying to remember the exact numbers here, but there's – according to the EU Tax Observatory, yes. there are 2,475 billionaires in the yep. world. Okay. And they pay – uh, $44 billion of tax. They're worth $9.1 trillion or 19 Anyway, the, the tax they pay is 0.3% of their wealth. Right. Which is, it was kind of meant to look bad, um, which and it kind of does, except yeah. that uh, uh, people don't pay, uh, only seven countries have got a wealth tax. Right, Most, okay. People don't pay tax on their wealth. Yes. Right? Yes. You and I don't. Nobody does. Yeah. Uh, in most countries. There are a few countries that have got a wealth tax. The wealth taxes tend to range between half a percent and one percent. Right. So 0.3 percent is not ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, as a percentage of wealth. Yes. Um, th- they've, got, they've got a little bit of data on what percentage of their income they pay. Right, yes. Um and uh, as I say, it's only three countries they've got, the United States, France and Netherlands. I don't know why they picked those three. Um, and they pay, the billionaires pay 20 to 25% of their income. Okay. Right. According to that, in those, in those three countries, which was higher than I expected. Exactly, and then I thought yeah. about it. Then I thought about it. It's meaningless because billionaires don't have much income. You know, they, they live off their companies. Yeah. Okay. You know, they, like they don't. 
need much I mean, they they get paid everything gets paid for them yes yes so their income would be minimal yeah i guess uh, so yeah well uh, that's that's my kind of take on it yeah um i mean if they're paying 25% of their income well well i just don't believe it do, do you conclude in your column that wealth taxes are necessary more broadly uh the the eu tax observatory the number one big recommendation is that there should be a global 2% wealth tax wow. on billionaires. Only billionaires. Oh, billionaires. Right, okay. Right? Uh, yeah. they, they sort of it should discriminate against billionaires. The Money Cafe audience just let out a sigh of relief. But so, you know, you think, well, yeah, okay, that'd be nice, but that's not going to happen, right? I mean... I know. Th- so that, that would mean if it actually happened, Gina Reinhardt would be paying $800, $800 million dollars. Every year. Yeah. Wow. So that's not going to happen. No. She's firstly, Anthony Albanese is not going to ask her to pay $800 million. No, I wouldn't have and thought so. No, and she's not going to pay it. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's not a 2% wealth tax. Yeah, okay, nice, but wouldn't happen. Yeah. Uh, so, what I've suggested in the last sort of paragraph of my yeah. column is that la- national leaders like Anthony Albanese should have a little book in their pocket with the tax that's paid by billionaires yes. and other rich people. And uh, when someone asks him for a, to, for a meeting or invites him to a party, he should look up his little book and if they don't pay tax, yes. he says no. Right. He should have nothing to do with uh, non-tax-paying billionaires. Right. Uh, because uh, they're all, they all want to be... Rubbing shoulders, these billionaires need and, and want to be Brett's rubbing style. shoulders with power, powerful people. Yes, yes. with political power, because you know all that stuff about when Richard uh, Anthony Pratt says, "My superpower is that I'm rich." Yes. Right, that was the kind of number one quote, which I thought was great. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was all about Prince Charles. Yeah, of course. And how he was saying, you know, uh, because my superpower is I'm rich, and therefore I'm useful to Prince Charles. Right? Yeah. I like the idea of becoming a colonel as well. You didn't yeah. want to be a sir because that's a bit passe. Colonel, colonel Anthony Pratt. Colonel, colonel Pratt, yeah, yeah. I like it. Um, but, but, you know, uh, Prince li- Charles ought to be saying, I don't want to have anything to do with you if you don't pay tax. Yeah, the little black tax book. That's what I say. I like it. Um, what do you want to say about Magellan? Oh, look, I, 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 I'm... Um, Listeners might have seen that Magellan is going to have a new CEO. It's fourth in about two and a bit years. Uh, David George uh, parted ways with the company last uh, yesterday on, on Wednesday. Um, there's a new chairman at Magellan, Andrew Formica, uh, who's sort of cleaning house, I guess. Um, new C- the CEO's gone. Uh, the, these onerous loans, share, share loans that the employees had have been wiped out. Um, I guess I think it's just interesting, you know. This thing had 116 billion dollars of funds under management in November 2001. It's now got 35. So uh, for Micah's, I think he's, you know, fair enough to try and reset the place. Investors will be sick of hearing about resets. Um, but I, I, the question for me is, how do you fix a listed fund manager? All across the world, you look at there's heaps of listed fund managers. They're all going through the same. They're all facing the same sort of existential crisis. All the money's going to passive. All the money's going to private capital. 
private debt or private equity, whatever it is. Uh, you can do mergers, you can cut your fees. None of it is working. Um, is it, it because it, it's not working because because why the active managers just can't make can't actually beat the beat the index? Well, largely a lot of them can't. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, and I, uh, you know, people aren't just aren't able to justify the fees. So, you know, is the model busted? I, I don't know. I mean. I don't quite see how Magellan turns this around easily. Perhaps they can stabilise a ship and that would be a fair effort. Do you, know, do, do you happen to know what their fee is? Uh, no, I don't. No. Um, whatever, it is, whatever it is, they're not earning it, I suppose, is the... Yeah, their investment performance has been okay in the last little while, but, uh, you know, this is the thing. A bad patch of investment performance just kills you. And it's hard to keep beating the market, right? <laughs> yeah. You know? So well, especially as you get big. Especially as you get big, yeah. Yeah, because you can't really invest in tiny little companies. You can't find enough of them. No, well. that's right. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. I'm sure a lot of um, listeners will have followed Magellan's travails. It's, anyway, the, the, another new dawn and let's see where it goes. Yes. Let's go on to questions, shall we? Yes. Uh, first one's from Marilyn. Um, it's a long question, so I'll sort of try to... Uh, paraphrase it. She um, she's a shareholder of Carbon Revolution. Uh, they're moving to Nasdaq. Uh, in order to go with them as a shareholder, you have to do a, what's called a DTC election. Uh, election. You have to elect to shift over to them. Uh, uh, Maryland's broker is NAB Trade. She was having trouble because uh, they said they wouldn't do it. But I've I've been told by the company. I rang them up. Um, I've been told by the company that NAB Trade will do it, Maryland, so you should be okay. And if, uh, well, the company's told me that NAB Trade's doing it. I, I mean, I haven't spoken to NAB Trade uh, or NAB, uh, but the company said that NAB Trade does do it. So, um, there Perhaps you go. get in touch with the company if you really get stuck. Yeah. It's in their interest to drag their shareholders along, that's for sure. Yeah. Adrian says, I own a small amount of Woodside shares and recently noticed they've cancelled their dividend reinvestment plan, the DRP. Why would Woodside or any company for that matter cancel their DRP? Isn't it beneficial to have people reinvest their dividends back in the company? Yeah, so is it, is it beneficial? I mean, why would someone cancel it? Uh, to conserve capital, you know, um, you have to – and the other thing is a DRP requires you to issue shares and so your share count does increase. Um, so uh, usually companies try and neutralise the DRP by buying back the same amount of shares so the share count doesn't increase, which does cost money. So maybe Woodside has got a lot of uh, things on its plate at the moment, big projects – Managing its dividend, they've decided to uh, um, suspend that part of their capital returns program. It doesn't, doesn't look like it's coming back quickly either. Bruce says, um, in last week's Money Cafe, you mentioned that the American food companies are getting worried about Ozempic, the drug that causes people to eat less food. Yes. Uh, ResMed's also been getting worried. Their share price is down a lot. Yep, CSL. <laughs> CSL's down mm-hmm. for, for a different reason because they bought a... Swiss pharmaceutical company that does kidney disease and Ozempic apparently fixes up kidneys too. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, anyway, uh, it was based on a column I did for the News Only about it um, and uh, Bruce says he took Ozempic and didn't lose any weight. Um, so 
uh, I ceased taking the injections because the worldwide shortage meant that I couldn't get it. Instead, I just cut out eating manufactured carbohydrates, no buns, bread, sugar, etc. Uh, brought my diabetes under control quickly and caused me to lose 10 kilos in four kilograms in four months. Anyway, so that's what he says. Uh, Look, uh, yeah, I think Bruce is right. It doesn't work for everyone, but it works for a hell of a lot of people. And I, I've been really interested in this. Um, the 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 pain has spread. I mean, Walmart even said that they are seeing some sort of a Zempic effect. Uh, and you know, the big US grocery player. So. Uh, Brad Banducci at Woolworths was asked about this on Wednesday. He said, no, nah, no, nah, not enough people taking a Zempic here. But there are in America, and this will have lots of different ripple effects. I think some of them, like at ResMed, may prove to be not as painful as shareholders might think. But there are implications, and there will be different shares, different companies will be whacked at different times. So investors want to be careful that there's just not a momentum trade like we've seen at ResMed where maybe the pain's not as bad as it's going to be, but people sell first and worry about the actual results later. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, uh, I reckon the big picture is that, you know, if we'll, we'll eventually have uh, these drugs generic, right? There'll, yeah. be, a, there'll yeah. be a... It'll take a while, obviously. Yeah. Um, uh, the company Nord, Nord Nordisk... Uh, Novo Nordisk. Novo Nordisk makes it. Yep. Uh, They're not making enough, so there's a shortage. Um, They've got about three or four brands of the stuff. Uh, Yeah. Zempic's only one of the brands, Um, and uh, you know, and obviously it'll it'll make it'll start to make enough, and then eventually it'll be generic. Yeah. So it may be just like statins of starting to help get heart disease under control. you know, everyone's taking statins like like me um, to deal with their cholesterol, and you know, yeah. hopefully, don't die of a heart attack. Uh, eventually, this stuff will start to control uh, obesity. You'd imagine it, this is a this could be like a world changing yeah, trend. That's what I think. It's, uh, I it's mean, potentially uh, world, you know, a big deal. Bruce is right; it won't work for everyone all the time. But once it is no longer injectable but able to be taken in pill form and the dose will be able to be managed. People will go on different levels of dosage. Imagine the healthcare benefits. All those obesity-related conditions start to fall away. It's going to be fantastic. I mean, I'm starting to wonder what are we going to die of? I mean, (laughs) so if we don't die of heart attack, right, and there's there's just about – we're close to having a cure for cancer and we're not going to die of being too fat. So, I don't know. To know, we'll have to take a lot of pills, though, to get us through there. Uh, Bruce number two says, with the ASX back to where it was four years ago, December 2019, it's a funny old time for us investors who are feeling the inverse wealth effect. I know there's a lot of uncertainty right now, but if you polish your crystal ball, what's your best guess of where the ASX 200 will be in another four years' time? Well, it's actually just about back to where it was 16 years ago, isn't it? it I mean, it was like the peak of October 2007, which was... Yep, uh, I can't remember what the number was, but it, yeah, it's, it's about sixty-eight hundred points. Yeah, yeah, so it's about seven thousand now, so not, yeah. not that far above it. Um, so yeah, like Br- Bruce reckons a fifty percent rise to hit ten thousand points wouldn't be out of the question, would it? Uh, I, 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 I reckon think it might yeah, be Bruce. I reckon that's out of the question. The, the, I'm gonna look. I'm gonna give you a little preview of my uh, of what I'm sort of thinking about at the moment, but. The ASX 200 is dominated by banks, miners, 
the outlook for them is not perfect. And they are such a big part of the index. To get to 10,000 points, they would need to have a dramatic reversal of fortune to take us there. Or we need the emergence of uh, NVIDIA or, or uh, maybe a couple of Microsofts on the ASX. I mean... No, but it's interesting that you say that because, you know, um, the banks have been huge beneficiaries of the financialization of the economy. Yep. Uh, you know, and everyone's taken out more loans and all this stuff. And now everyone's up to their eyeballs with loans. So that's it for the yeah. banks, right? <laughs> yeah. And the mining companies, the iron ore miners in particular, have been huge beneficiaries of the growth of China. Yeah. And China stopped growing. Yeah. yeah. So, as you say, that's it. Now, the next phase of the world's growth and world's wealth is coming from artificial intelligence. Or a Zempic. Or a Zempic. <laughs> that's right. And uh, we're not there. Yeah, we're not there. We're just, we're just not in the game. So it's, so it's hard. I mean, you know, I think you look at what the super funds are doing sometimes and how they look, they've got a lot of money sloshing around, but they're not, you know, they're, they're looking outside the ASX 200. And the good thing is that's easier to do than it has been. So that's good. Daniel says, hello, great podcast. I listen every week mowing my lawn. Do you mow your lawn every week, Daniel? I mean, that's... That's good. Maybe he's in Queensland or something. I think he must be playing croquet on the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Leave him alone. Can you, can you give your view about the recently spruced Guzman and Gomez IPO? I'm intrigued. It seems to be a great brand. And given Stephen's comments regarding delistings and private equity, it appears they are going the other way. Also, any other example of co-chiefs working well together as that appears to be the listing strategy. Uh, Guzmani Gomez, I believe it's pronounced, uh, Alan. Um, Guzman. Guzmani Gomez, yeah. Uh, oh. So for anyone who doesn't know, this is a Mexican fast food retailer. Um, started, started by a bloke called Stephen Marks. Stephen Marks, yep. Um, they are owned by, uh, owned by a bit of Baron Joey, owned by a bit of private equity. Uh, latest valuation was sort of $1.3 billion. Um, they're, they're probably a year away from an, any IPO. And I think that the, the Finn had a story this week that they've sort of been told to cool their jets about the valuation. Um, so you think of Domino's Pizza, they're trading on sort of 30 times earnings. The market is telling Guzmani Goez, investors are telling Guzmani Gomez that something like 17 to 18 times would be more appropriate. Um, I think Daniel's right. People are sceptical about when private equity floats something. Um, but this thing's grown very strongly, um, is very popular. You got one of them out your way? Um, a couple, yeah. 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 Um, there's one in just out in the street. Where, yeah, where, I know, where there's we one out here. here. I, use, I go there all the time. Good? Yeah. I've actually, I've actually never eaten there. Haven't you? No, is it good? Yeah, it's good. Okay. It's, it's, Co-chiefs, it's really good. Co-chief executives working together is very unusual. There's a couple of examples. Um, MA Financial's got co-chiefs executives. I would say the history of co-chief executives is bad. Um, and can, probably short. And short, yeah. <laughs> it can work in some very specific uh, circumstances. The best example, of course, is Atlassian, where Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar are co-chief executives. But generally... Yeah, it sort of doesn't tend to work out that well. Nick asks, on a recent episode of The Money Cafe, you said that climate change would be by far the most dominant issue in the years ahead. However, in the past two years, the opposite has been reflected in markets, with many renewable stocks falling significantly. 
Do you see this turning around anytime soon? And for companies working in fields related to climate change, such as Planet Labs, is there light at the end of a dark tunnel? Uh, well, Nick, I, I would uh, uh, I would urge you not to not to equate the stock market with reality for a start. Um, Necessarily, I mean, yeah, the uh, renewable energy stocks have been falling, but that really—they just went up too much, I think. Uh, you know, everyone got a bit carried away. Yeah, you know, but, but I, I still do think that uh, in a, in probably possibly in six months, but certainly in a few years' time, we'll be talking about nothing else but climate change. Yeah, that's, that's my view. I think it's interesting, though. Uh, while renewable stocks have been coming down, conventional energy stocks, fossil fuel stocks are surging. You look at Origin and AGL here, uh, we've seen two massive, massive, massive oil uh, deals in the last two weeks in America. And this is, the, 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 this is two sides of the same coin. We don't have enough fossil fuel power. The renewables aren't coming in quick enough. And so... Uh, you know, uh, was described this week by a strategist as a golden sunset for fossil fuels. A bit like sunset, yeah. a bit, a bit like tobacco companies have had. Yeah. Uh, they've got pricing power. The demand's still there. Supply's fallen away, and they can make a heck of a lot of money in a very short space of time. Yeah. Um, Brett says, as an engineer, I'm very concerned about the misuse of the term net zero and the componentization of environmental manufacturing impacts and costs of wind, solar battery storage, and obviously the required transmission lines. As you're an economist, do you have any of the same concerns for our environment and economy that I do? And should we as a country have a real discussion on nuclear, as it seems to me as a plug and play solution to coal powered power stations? Oh. It's definitely not a plug and play solution. I mean, if we wanted to build small modular reactors, which everyone seems to love, we'd need heaps of them, absolutely heaps of them, and they are probably uh, 20 to 30 years away if yeah. we started today. So that is not plug and play. So whatever we – I don't mind having a debate about nuclear. Maybe it'll be really helpful to us in – but it'll be helpful to us in 30 years' time, not in three not in 13, in 30 years' time. But that's right. In 20 or 30 years' time, we'll have enough renewable energy. Yeah. So there'll be enough batteries, you know, it'll be fine. So that, that, that's why there is a and, – and, you know, you just need so many skills and expertise that are in very limited supply. So I, I, don't, I think a discussion's fine. I, I think we should keep discussing this, but it's not plug and play. Uh, Jed says, do you think Twitter will ever become profitable? Good sharp question, Jed. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, not the way Elon Musk is running it, I would have thought. I mean, he seems to want to – well, he does want to turn it into WeChat, uh, the Chinese app that does everything. Yeah. yeah. And um, that's just this that's just this sort of um, light on the hill that's, that everyone would love to have, but it's not going to happen in the West because we're all so used to doing everything separately and different things. I mean, nobody's going to use – Twitter or X to make their payments to yeah. do their banking and yeah. I mean no one's I don't think anyone's going to do use uh, do that uh, use it to go shopping with really I, I think it's really interesting Twitter like I spend a bit of time on it I'm sure you do too Alan but you should never overestimate how much time the rest of the community spends on it because most people are not on Twitter no. in Australia. Most people wouldn't know the first thing about it. I, I just... And some, some, it is true that some people see, seem to spend a lot of time on yeah, Twitter. totally. Uh, you know, because I, I, I sometimes look at it and there's bloody people going all the time. 
But there's not many of those, that's for sure. And I use it to, you know, uh, push my columns and stuff. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. It's okay. Old argument with people? <laughs> Bit of an argument sometimes. I can't really... I certainly can't be bothered arguing with people who don't use their name. Yes, I agree. You know. Uh, which one we go to now? Uh, given all the stability in the wor- instability in the world right now, would you recommend I explore moving my money out of an ethical out of an ethical super fund into a good old-fashioned unethical fund. <laughs> in, the tra- in the tragic eventuality of all-out war in the Middle East and even Asia, I don't want to risk missing out on the mother of all rallies in the dirty, unethical stocks like oil, key minerals and weapons manufacturers because my super fund manager is a hippie who believes in divesting <laughs> will bring us world peace. Great question, Alex. I think you've answered it yourself, though. <laughs> if you're worried about those things... Um, it is. I mean, it is an interesting. I only thought of it like that. Um, ethical, ethical super funds have tended to shift away from fossil fuels, definitely weapons. That's almost the standard ethical uh, uh, screen. Um, no, but the, but the question is: so, so up till now, ethical funds have tended to outperform. Yeah, because of everyone's crowding into them, right? Yeah. So there's been this kind of. Ethical outperformance. I suppose the question raised by Alex is: Are we heading into a period when uh, ethical uh, funds will underperform? Yeah, maybe. Uh, and if, but, but I think it's certainly true that you don't go into them for performance. You go into them because you want to want to sleep at night. You want to yeah. feel right. You want to feel right about where your money's being used. Yeah. I've got to say, I don't know many super funds that are unethical. I know Alex is, uh, you know, exaggerating to make a point, but. Most of the big industry funds here, most of the, all the super funds have massive ESG teams. They're so hot on this stuff. So they might give you exposure to fossil fuels, but they are prosecuting – they are climate change believers. They, that's the direction they want to go. They're investing for the long term. So I don't think any super funds I haven't seen any. Unethical. I haven't seen any label themselves unethical. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's a good – A business opportunity. A good, good business opportunity. The Money Cafe's dirty super fund. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. One more question. Last one is, I'm going to make this all about me. Uh, Gavin says, James Thompson wrote an article on Tuesday the 17th of October about Howard Mark's commentary on the shifting investment landscape and moving from equities to credit. It's stated in the article that Mark sees equity-like returns from credit with lower risks attached. Is this because Marx foresees the return from equities generally decreasing uh, or returns from credits increasing or do they meet in the middle? And what options do retail investors have when it comes to credit investing, ranging from the low risk to high risk on the credit spectrum? Go. So, yes, Marx is that, – that is exactly what Marx is saying, that it's going to be harder for equities to deliver returns. But on the other side of the coin, for lots of reasons, including rising interest rates and what's happening in the banking sector, where banks are lending less money, which is opening the door for private credit, particularly to come in and – uh, lend money and get big returns. So m- what Marx is saying is equity equities come with risk. When you're lending to a company, you get protections. It's a contract you can, you know, you, a contract that can be enforced. Um, and so <clears throat> your risk in credit is lower, but the returns are... So how, how does... How does uh, somebody like uh, Gavin invest in, in credit? Uh, there are, I mean, there's lots of bond ETFs and that sort of thing at the moment. There's more private credit options 
going around. Pangana has one that's under development at the moment. I think it's actually listed on the ASX, a, a private credit fund. So there are things out there. Um, talk to your financial advisor. The number, I'm sure you're the same, Alan. The number of private credit emails that hit my inbox at the moment is extraordinary. So there's, there's stuff out there even for retail investors. Hmm. Okay, thanks everyone for your excellent questions as usual and uh, thanks for listening to today's episode of Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with Stephen Main. So if you've got any questions for us, send them to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until then, I'm Alan Cole, founder of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Senior Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Talk to you soon. <laughs>